This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. I'm still getting over my respiratory thing, and so you might hear I have, I still am using cough drops because if my throat gets just a little too dry, I just end up coughing, coughing, coughing. So I apologize if you can pick up the sound of a cough drop in my mouth, but it's better to have that sound than to have to keep pausing because I am in a coughing fit. Today's episode, I wanted to talk about trauma and I wanted to talk about trauma work. And I'm kind of going to take a maybe different or a unique approach in talking about this. So last weekend, I was listening to a book. That's the way I consume most of my books, although I still love to be able to sit down with an actual paper book and, you know, turn the pages and have all of those sensations of reading a real book. And and, and I love that, right? I just don't necessarily, if I were relying on that method of reading, I would not get very many books read because I don't have a lot of time to actually just sit down and read books. So my main method for reading books is to listen to books. And I know that that's true for a lot of people out there. And so last weekend, I you know kind of had a busy weekend and was going to be doing different things. And so I was, you know, it's always good for me to either have a good podcast I'm listening to or a book that I'm listening to. And I had been recommended this book called All 13 by Christina Sunturnvat. I don't know if that's how you say the last name, but something similar to that. It's called All 13. And it's kind of a short book. It was, you know, a little over four hours. And it focused on the rescue that happened back in June and July of the Thai soccer team that was trapped in a cave. And it was an interesting story. Um, You know, my kids play soccer, not that the book really had anything to do with soccer. But I remember when they were trapped and kind of looking for updates every day to see if they had, you know, rescued the boys or what the plan was for the boys who were trapped in the cave, along with one coach, right? 13 players, 12 players, I believe, and a coach that had gotten trapped in this cave. And so let me just, if you, you know, it's been a couple of years since 2018 when this happened, you might remember this, or maybe some of you, you know, missed that happening. There was a lot of news happening in 2018. So on Saturday, June 23rd, 12 members of a Thai boys soccer team named the Wild Boars and their coach got trapped in the Tam Luang Nang Non Cave. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Even though I could hear them saying the name of the cave over and over in the book, I don't know if I'm replicating the name of that cave very well. So I've seen some reports that were saying that the boys were apparently performing a sort of initiation ceremony in the cave. Now that's not what this book talked about. And this book actually talked about several times how, you know, the press had some things wrong. So I don't know if that was wrong. You know, the the book kind of talked about how, you know, the coach, which again, having kids that played soccer, my kids did this too. Like the coach encouraged um, team building stuff, time spent together with the team, exploring, doing different things like that. And so this book just kind of 
mentioned that this was kind of an activity that was planned to go do after a soccer practice. And not all the boys on the team were able to go, which kind of makes me think that it actually wasn't an initiation ceremony because not all of the boys from the team went. Some of them, you know, had family things or their parents told them that they couldn't go. So this team went in, they rode their bikes there, they went in the cave. They were two and a half miles in when they got stuck because the cave flooded and blocked their way back out. So park officials discovered the boys' bikes at the entrance to the cave and were concerned. Also, you know, parents were concerned that they didn't know where their children were. And I believe um, the soccer coach had a birthday party or a party that he was going to be attending and he didn't show up. So people knew that maybe they were missing and started to call around. That's when the park officials discovered the boys' bikes at the cave entrance and kind of made some assumptions that the boys hadn't come out of the cave. So a major search and rescue operation was launched in order to find them. Now, fast forward a couple days, Monday, July 2nd, the Thai soccer team and their coach were found and they were found showing signs of life after being trapped for nine days in this flooded cave. They had kind of made their way up above the floodwaters and were kind of huddling together to stay warm. And, you know, divers found all 12 of the boys. However, this isn't the end of the story because like I said, they were two and a half miles from the entrance. Now, the coach of the soccer team, this book talked about how he was what they called stateless, so didn't necessarily have a country or state that he belonged to, and was kind of raised by monks and went to school by monks. His family kind of got him over to Thailand, in particular to this area, um, for safety reasons. But he was kind of raised by monks in this monastery. And so he had been taught, he, you know, considered his future as going into this same kind of lifestyle and living as a monk and didn't do that. But, you know, he had learned from a young boy, the power of meditation, and had also taught the boys on the team the power of meditation in order to stay calm and conserve energy, you know, while they're waiting in this cave to be rescued. And some reports say that divers actually found the team meditating when they arrived at the cave. I don't know if that's true or if that's just a really good storyline. But getting into the cave was not easy. And the divers also knew that getting the team out was going to be even harder. So initially, you know, the Thai government brought Thai Navy SEAL divers and rescue workers to the scene and they entered kind of a narrow passageway where they you know discovered high and murky waters that really were blocking their progress at, of making it into further into the cave to find the team they were kind of saying you know it was coming up on the rainy season but started raining maybe sooner than expected and much more than was expected and kind of was the coming together maybe of the perfect storm so to speak to to kind of make this all happen on the day that they had gone to the cave. So they had to keep withdrawing for safety reasons because, you know, the rising water continued to fill sections of the cave, forcing them back out. And then when the water levels dropped, the divers would go forward with a more methodical approach, 
and tried to develop a rope line and provide extra oxygen for the cave divers along the way. Now, eventually, you know, there was a there was a cave diver who was very familiar with this particular cave and had been to the cave actually not too long before this day when the, the team got trapped. He was from the UK, but was living in Thailand and had been to this cave many times. So, you know, they knew that they needed somebody who really was an expert on this cave and could kind of map out what the cave looked like. And so they had him come to the site. And, you know, after kind of watching the Thai Navy SEALs struggle, you know, he, I mean, he said they were highly trained, but he himself was a cave diver and knew that there were things that cave divers knew that maybe weren't the same skill set that the Navy SEALs had needed prior, you know, in their previous service. I mean, not the Navy SEALs, these were the Thai Navy SEALs. And so he was advocating to bring in other expert cave divers. Now, this book kind of talks about when people started doing cave diving and just how many people died during cave dives. So much so that several countries, including the United States, were considering banning cave diving altogether just because of the high fatalities that were happening with cave diving. And instead, one of the cave divers, I don't recall the name of this person, but he came up with like a list of safety rules for cave diving. And this started to kind of get passed around to different cave divers and they started to see death among cave divers decrease. Now, one of the things he talked about in this list of rules was how important it was to not panic. And, you know, I think if I recall in this set of rules, again, I don't have the hard book, so I can't go reference that. But in this set of rules, he talked about multiple times, like, you can't panic. Like, just how important and how likely we are as human beings in situations like that to panic and how that actually works against us. So they kind of figured that there were three options that were available to get the boys out. So they could teach the boys to swim out with scuba gear. They could drag them out of the cave or they could leave them with supplies to wait until the water drained after the monsoon season ended, which would have been another four months. So while they were trying to figure out the best option, you know, they had brought in other cave divers, some medical professionals, um, one of which was an anesthesiologist. I believe he was also part of the, from the UK and he was also a cave diver. So, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm like, wow, what are the odds that this anesthesiologist who's also a cave diver was needed at such a time as this, like, you know, something maybe he does as a hobby or a side thing when his real job is this anesthesiologist and yet they needed exactly both of those things in this situation. So once they were able to reach the boys, they started to be able to deliver them medicine and food to try to increase their strength. You know, they talked about how the first divers who found the boys were a little taken back at how emaciated and malnourished these boys look. Now, if you've you know ever seen images or know anybody who is Thai, you kind of know they tend to be smaller people than others. And this was not an exception. 
these boys were also, you know, kind of smaller boys. And then they had been in the cave for two weeks before they were found. And they were able to get them food. You know, they talked about that they knew that they couldn't drink the water in the cave because that tended to be really dirty and could have a lot of infectious things that they were avoiding. But they were trying to get the water that would kind of drip off the stalactites that were coming down from the cave. If some of the water was dripping off of that, they would use that in order to try to stay somewhat hydrated. So on Wednesday, July 4th, the team began taking swimming lessons and diving lessons. Now, swim lessons in Thailand are quite rare. And I looked this up. The leading cause of death for children under 15 in Thailand is drowning. So they were trying to teach these boys how to swim and dive before they could start their journey out of the cave. Now, I recently took adult swim classes in 2019. I took them for almost a year. And when I started taking them, you know, my instructor, they were just one-on-one. And my instructor said, you know, do you not know how to swim? And I was like, well, I know how to swim, kind of. Like, I'm not going to drown, I don't think. But like, I took swimming lessons maybe when I was five or six. You know, a summer, like a week or two. I'm like, so I, I kind of know how to swim. But if I get in the pool or if I get in, you know, a body of water or something, sure, I'll go ahead and swim. But I don't really know if I'm doing it right. I'm like, I... I think that there are techniques that I probably did not learn. I definitely did not master them when I was five or six in swimming lessons. And he asked me, he said, well, what do you remember from your swimming lessons? And I said, well, I remember my, the neighbor boy who hit his chin on the pool, the side of the pool, and it just blood going everywhere and into the water. So that's really the main memory I have of swimming lessons. So having recently taken swimming lessons... And again, going back to these rules that were going to be really, really important for cave diving, which is do not panic. Now, one of the things as I was doing my swimming lessons, the instructor said to me, like, do you deal with anxiety? And I was like, no, not really. And he was like, do you have anxiety when you're swimming? And I was like, yes, like, yes, I do. I I am aware of that, right? And I'm like, particularly when it's shifting from more, not the shallow end, but kind of that medium end into the deep end. Like when it's going into the deep end, I notice panic and I just swim as fast as I can to get to the wall and be done. And he was like, yeah, you need to stop doing that. Like that's not going to work, right? Now, how many years later is it? I And I'm better with that. Like it still, it doesn't go away exactly for me, but as I've continued to swim and where I swim now, it's more of a lap pool. So I don't have to even deal with that issue. But as I've gotten more confident and strong as a swimmer, even when I swim in a pool that has, you know, a deep end, the anxiety isn't the same as it was when I started taking swim lessons. So you've got 12 boys who don't know how to swim and they don't know how to dive. And they're going to have to be doing this in a cave. I can't even imagine that. Like that would terrify me. And I'm a pretty strong, confident swimmer. Now the Thai Navy SEALs divers started working on installing a fiber optic cable. So the team could get internet in there, which is fascinating to me that they could do that. And the soccer players were able to talk to their families. Now, 
other countries, including Australia and Britain and China and Israel and the United States also began providing resources and helping out in the rescue. As I said, three expert cave divers came from the UK, as well as a team of 30 divers from the US military's Indo-Pacific Command started to kind of work with the Navy SEALs, the Thai Navy SEALs. And then China and Australia also sent experts and rescue workers to Thailand. Israel's MaxTech networks also provided radio devices that helped rescuers maintain communication with the soccer team after they were discovered in the cave. And these devices provided voice and data and video access. So kind of amazing what we can do in a situation like that. So Thursday, July 5th, authorities started to drain water from the cave. So rescuers could then enter the cave up to the third chamber, which was about a mile from the cave's entrance. And they could enter that third chamber without using scuba gear. But remember, the team are like two and a half miles from the cave's entrance. So they began to pump water out to drain the cave and water levels were reduced about 40% in some areas of the cave. But miles of the tunnel was still full of water. Now they knew maybe if we can drain enough water out of the cave, the boys could even walk out. And then we aren't gonna have to be dealing with rescuing them by cave diving them out. Some experts worried that the team just wasn't strong enough or well enough to be moved from the cave. So oxygen started to be pumped in the cave to aid to their recovery. At least they said at least two of the boys and the coach were exhausted and malnourished. Now on Friday, July 6th, unfortunately, a Navy SEAL working with the rescue team passed away. It was Simon Gunnan, who was a former Thai Navy SEAL. He had died during an overnight mission and he was delivering oxygen along the cave for the boys in the coach. And he actually died due to lack of oxygen himself. And he was the only fatality from the rescue. So July 7th, oxygen levels in the cave continue to drop though, as and authorities are more and more concerned that they're not just gonna have time to save the entire team. Now, you know, some experts were, you know, unfortunately saying, I don't know that we're gonna get any of them out alive. Others were saying we're probably going to have four or five fatalities. Nobody thought that all 13 of them were actually going to make it out safe and alive. So at this point, they decide that the only way that they're going to be able to bring them out of the cave is by navigating dark and tight passageways that are filled with muddy water and strong currents. Not the best situation for a rescue, especially with boys who are, you know, getting weaker by the day because they're not really getting nutrition and they don't know how to swim. So the path out was considered especially complicated because there were twists and turns and like I said, narrow flooded passageways. Some were only two feet wide that they're trying to get them out of. So what they ended up deciding to do is two divers would accompany each boy and they would be guided by a rope. So, you know, they were talking about how for cave divers, if you don't have like a guide rope, it's really easy for you to get lost and not really know your bearings and get into risky situations. And so they would bring the boys from where they were to chamber three, and then hopefully the boys would be able to walk out from chamber three. 
But for the harder parts, you know, they talked about how do we get the boys out safe. This book went into some detail about finding the right masks to where they wanted a full face mask so the boys weren't necessarily having to focus on their breathing and all of that. It was just a full face mask. But they also had some difficulty finding masks that were actually going to fit these boys' faces and kind of provide a good suction so that it was safe. And so this neurosurgeon who had come in, you know, they had decided that the best way that they could do this was to, you know, sedate the boys with ketamine, uh, with a combination of ketamine, Xanax, and atropine. This would also help to keep them calm before the divers kind of pulled them out of where they were. And they also like tied their hands and feet together so that their body just kind of like, we don't want to get, you know, hands and arms caught on things or different things like that. And so their body could just kind of move more fluidly and not kind of have these limbs out that might get stuck or damaged. Now, one of the things they were talking about, right, is the anesthesiologist was a little bit concerned. You know, he hadn't sedated boys in these situations. And, you know, one of the worst things they could do, now it's hard to overdose on ketamine. I don't even think it's possible to overdose on ketamine. But they obviously don't want to give them way more than is necessary. But they also don't want the boys waking up mid-extraction. Because if boys wake up mid-extraction, of course they're going to panic. And at that point, it puts the boy's life at risk. It puts the two divers who are accompanying the boy at risk. So the anesthesiologist kind of figured it out. And I think the divers also had an extra injection with them in case one of the boys did wake up mid-extraction, they could put them back under. So on Sunday, July 8th, the first four boys are out of the cave and safe and healthy and taken to a local hospital after being rescued. And the rescue mission ended at that point because of low oxygen levels and it's late and the divers you know, that are accompanying the boys are exhausted and they don't want to push them too hard because again, that's a high risk. So the next morning, four more boys were rescued from the cave, which brings the total to eight that had been rescued. Some of the same rescue divers who got the boys out on Sunday also went back in on Monday. So they would have gone about 10 miles total on the two trips. So all eight boys we have out right now are in the hospital and they're expected to stay there for a week to 10 days. They kind of isolated them, just not knowing They didn't want to expose them. They knew their immune systems, their lungs, all of that had been compromised. And so they kind of put them in a secluded area uh, with each other, right? But not with other hospital patients. And so they're, you know, in the hospital expected to stay about a week to 10 days in order to get fully back on their feet and healthy. But we have four boys and their coach still stranded in the cave. So the rescue team takes another break Monday night in order to rest and to reset their oxygen tanks. And then Tuesday, July 10th, the remaining four boys and their coach are rescued from the cave. So now we have all 13 members of the soccer team rescued out of the cave and they're safe and they join their teammates in recovery at the hospital. Now, they were in the dark for so long that they had to wear protective sunglasses when they emerged from the cave in order to protect their eyes. And they all reported that they had no idea, or they believed, right, that people were aware of them. Once they were found, they knew that 
people knew they were lost and were working on getting them out of the cave and rescuing them. But they had no idea, right, that the world was watching and cheering for them and, you know, holding our breath, kind of hoping that they all are safe. After all the boys are out, the Thai authorities held a celebratory press conference where they said, we have done what others thought was impossible. Now, you know, on July 18th, first of the boys leave the hospital for the first time, do a press conference. And then, you know, like I, I mentioned a little bit, just that some of the boys and their coach were considered stateless. So they didn't actually have any citizenship anywhere. They didn't have passports. On August 8th, three of the boys, these three boys and their coach were all granted Thai citizenship and passports. And then, you know, they start going on a a media tour. Um, They even came to the United States and appeared on the Ellen show with a translator, talked about kind of what had happened. And, you know, they said they weren't scared and they always had hope, but they were able to stay calm because their coach continually told them to pray and to meditate. And there's several different books that have been written about this great rescue. There's also a Netflix documentary talking about this situation and the rescue of this Thai soccer team. You know, a year later in 2019, they kind of did a brief like check-in and were told that the boys were kind of weary of media, but were said to be doing just fine. Um, One of the local monks who kind of was watching over them had said that, you know, they were fine both physically and spiritually. And, you know, overall their town in Northern Thailand has kind of become a a bit of a tourist attraction. And, you know, they've been able to fundraise some money. You know, prior to this happening, the roads were mostly dirt with some thick mud, but they've been able to kind of renovate and pave roads and even have some shops settling in. And so that's bringing money to their local community and all the stuff like that. Now, there also was another person involved in the rescue who passed away, not during the rescue, but the following year in December 2019, a rescue diver and Thai Navy SEAL named Beirut Pakbara died of a blood infection that he contracted during the operation. So there have been two fatalities connected to this situation. One, when it was an active rescue. The other, because of complications encountered during the rescue. But all 13 of the wild boar Thai soccer team were rescued. So, okay, why am I talking about this story? And I said I was going to talk about trauma this episode. So how does that make sense? Well, so as I was listening to the book and I was thinking about, you know, just as they're talking about what a ordeal it's going to be to rescue these boys and to get them out safely and not sure that all of them were going to make it out, right? And I started to think to myself, again, like as I do with a lot of things, I think about the clients that I work with and the clients that we offer services to at our clinic. And I started to think, you know, there are some parallels to this with trauma work. So, you know, several of our therapists are in that process now of beginning trauma modality training. And I usually tell them like a couple of things you're going to need in order to really be effective and provide services that this client can kind of stand on, right? We're going to need to do some trauma training. 
you're going to need to, you know, be a CSAT or if you only want to work with partners, then you're going to need partner certification or partner training. And then you're going to need some relationship training, right? Or marriage training, marriage certificates, that type of stuff. And even if, you know, your client is single, we're still doing a lot of relational work with our clients. So we've got several who are starting that process and are have begun, like in March, they began taking their first trauma modality training and they're taking lifespan integration training. Now, one of the things I will tell them, you know, is that taking a trauma training doesn't necessarily make you trauma informed. And I think it's important to be trauma informed before you start taking a trauma modality training. So what do I mean by that? A couple of things. So I think, you know, a trauma-informed therapist understands the complexities that clients are dealing with when they've experienced trauma. And, you know, the kind of the term that we use is CPTSD, which stands for complex PTSD, right? And I usually tell clients that I'm working with or therapists that I'm working with, if you experienced childhood trauma, it is going to be complex PTSD because there's no way that somebody experiences childhood trauma. And if that isn't kind of resolved in childhood, the way trauma works, right? Sometimes I'm like, it seems cruel, but the way trauma works is it, it multiplies, right? It replicates, it repeats itself and starts to show up across the board and in varying situations and has multiple replications of itself. And so if you've experienced it at a young age, when we're young and impressionable, there's just no way that it's not going to become complex. So trauma-informed really recognizes or realizes the widespread impact of trauma and also understands potential paths for healing, right? So kind of recognizing signs and symptoms of trauma in staff and responding in a way where we're starting to integrate our knowledge as the therapist into knowledge for the client about trauma. Now that needs to happen before we actually start any trauma modality. So, you know, sometimes I think we have to be recognizing the behaviors or the symptoms that we're seeing in adulthood that might track back to childhood or that are the result of these earlier traumatic experiences. Or, I mean, not even necessarily are all of them earlier, right? But it's just this trauma pattern that has repeated. And we have to be able to recognize those behaviors and those symptoms when we're sitting with the client in the room. Now, in trauma-informed care, it's kind of this approach that assumes that an individual is more likely than not to have a history of trauma. And so trauma-informed care recognizes the presence of trauma symptoms and acknowledges the role that trauma may have played in an individual's life. So, you know, some of this initially, the work, what does it look like at at first, right? Really, a trauma-informed therapist initially is trying to provide a safe, trusting space for the client. And sometimes our office is the first place that this client has had that feels safe, that feels predictable, that feels like they can be trustworthy with this person. 
that there can be some mutual respect and collaboration that the therapist or the clinician is working to empower the client. And we're being aware of cultural differences or cultural issues or, you know, just differences that may happen that for the client, they may feel apart from or disconnected from the whole. And as a clinician, we're working to kind of create a connection with them and bring them in. So sometimes, you know, we may ask about what does that look like for you? Or how does that look in your family? Or tell me about your culture. What does that look like? You know, when you were growing up in this other country, tell me about customs, traditions, rituals, that type of stuff. So all of that really is about creating this safe space where, you know, sometimes when I have clients, they'll say, even just coming to this office, I feel my body kind of relax. And that doesn't happen at first. Usually many of my clients will say when I, you know, I feel at the Bountiful office that we have, that's a location here in Utah, the Bountiful office, um, we're on the second floor. So there's a super slow elevator that clients can take, or there's a pretty good staircase that clients can take. Most of them opt for the staircase because you do kind of feel like that you might get trapped in the elevator, although that has never happened since I've been in that building since 2011, so for a while. But they'll say, as I started to walk up the stairs, I just felt all this anxiety, right? Or I just kind of felt this dread or heaviness come over me. That's usually, you know, how clients will talk about it at first. And then they start to talk about just being able to feel safe and to start to breathe. And it's not uncommon, sometimes we'll have Clients that are like, yeah, I, I know I'm 30 minutes early, but that's okay. I'll just sit here and this is just a safe space for me to be. So I know I'm 30 minutes early, but I would rather come and sit here than do something else. So that's kind of what we're trying to do initially with trauma as a trauma-informed therapist, right? How do you and I build a trusting therapeutic relationship, right? For the therapist, that means we hold boundaries. It also means we respect and want to understand our clients' boundaries. I think it also means, you know, sometimes, especially if I have clients that tend to be more hypervigilant, I tend to explain a little bit more about what I'm doing and why I'm doing this, trying to make it safe for them to ask questions, right? Because that hypervigilance, they want to know what we're doing, right? I often tell therapists, I think it's important to inform clients about what we're doing so that they don't feel like, you know, they're not a part of the process. Or often that is how their trauma felt. Like I didn't know what was happening and other people were making these decisions or other people were having this power or this access to change. And I didn't really even understand that process. So that's kind of what we're looking at with trauma-informed, right? And it's usually slow going. And I, I tell sometimes clients, right, if they ask, but I tell therapists, it's slow going on the front end, but it's necessary. And then once we're hitting the trauma work, it usually goes much quicker or clients start to recognize the benefit quicker. Now for us, we work with clients for a long time. You know, the research says for sex addiction, you're looking at three to five years. You know, with some of my clients, I'm working with them six or seven years. Obviously, sometimes that's not weekly anymore. And, and they're not in the same 
level of distress that they were when they started. You know, sometimes when new clients start and I tell them it's a three to five year process, I'm telling them like, this isn't three to five years before you're feeling better or noticing changes or get sober. Like that's not what's going to happen. Right. But it is, it is a process if you want to stay in long-term recovery. So, you know, we do spend quite a bit of time on the front end. Now, one of the things we hear about with clients a lot, I've said this before in podcasts, EMDR is getting pretty well-known out there in the general lexicon. Clients know that it's a trauma modality. I don't know that a lot of clients know exactly what EMDR is. Maybe they've seen some YouTube videos, um, but I don't know that they know what it is, right? We get quite a few clients who have seen EMDR therapists. Now, some of our therapists are trained in EMDR. Some of them are trained in lifespan integration. Some are trained in both. But we get quite a few clients who have been to other EMDR therapists. And, you know, we're always curious, like, why are you here looking for another trauma therapist? And, you know, it's it's kind of, well, on some days it's upsetting to me. Um, other days it's disappointing to me. Other days I really feel bad for clients and somewhat like have to apologize on behalf of professionals in my field because on day one that therapist started EMDR right so they're starting a modality before actually understanding and being trauma-informed and oftentimes that client didn't know that that's what that was right they didn't know that they were starting EMDR on that session and so again, to me, I'm like, I, I mean, I need to know on that first session, like, here's the limits of confidentiality. And are you suicidal or, you know, are you a threat to yourself or others? Tell me a little bit about you. What brings you to therapy and what are you looking to change? And what do you think life will look like when you change? Right. I, I mean, that's kind of a first session. I can't imagine jumping into a trauma modality on the very first session. I think there's some prep work. You know, I know some trauma professionals, trauma trained professionals who work with clients that are not the same level of complex PTSD that my clients experience. And so that goes a little bit quicker and that makes sense to me. That doesn't, that's not upsetting to me or that doesn't raise red flags to me. I, that totally makes sense to me, right? But some of these clients that then find us and come to us, I'm like, there's no way I just don't think that there's any way session one is trauma modality. It can be trauma-informed, but there's a difference between trauma-informed, right? And some of that goes into how the clinician responds to the client, what the clinician is looking for, right? Sometimes I change or fluctuate my tone of voice. I might lean in or I might kind of keep my a little bit of a distance depending on how I feel that client needs me to be in that initial session. So there's some trauma-informed care that needs to happen for trauma modalities to be effective. Okay, so let me tie this experience of rescuing the Thai soccer team and trauma-informed and trauma modalities, right? So one of the rules when this cave diver was coming up with rules so that, that they could reduce the number of cave divers who were ending in fatalities, one of the rules that he came up with was stir up as little as possible from the bottom, right? You don't want all that silt and all that stuff on the bottom floor stirred up because you're not going to be able to see, right? So 
and I, I was in supervision with a couple of therapists last week that worked for me and we were talking about um, trauma and I was saying like, we're trying to go in initially trauma-informed. We don't want to stir up a whole lot underneath because we're not going to be able to see and our client is going to be able to see, right? Because we don't know what is on the ground level for this client. And so if all of that gets stirred up, it's going to limit our vision as the therapist and it's going to limit the client's vision of the therapist. Also, it's going to not feel good to them, right? It's going to increases the likelihood of both the client and the clinician panicking. And that's not a good thing. We don't want to panic, right? So trauma-informed care says we've moved at a rate. Maybe we're teaching you to dive, right? Maybe we have all the time in the world and we're we're pumping in oxygen, we're bringing in food and water, and we're waiting until the monsoon season is over. Maybe we're teaching you to swim and we're teaching you to dive and how to do it with scuba gear and how to do it in a cave so that we can get you out safely, right? Because we can't necessarily as mental health professionals, we can't go in with ketamine and Xanax and we can't go in and sedate our clients, right? That's not how trauma therapy works or what trauma-informed care is. So we need to be able to, and we want to be able to, right? Because the other thing with ketamine, it also means that the boys did not remember the rescue. They don't really have memories of that, which in that instance, probably for the best. But with some of our clients, like I don't want to just take away their memories, right? We want it to not be as triggering. We don't want it to lead them into shame spirals. We don't want it to, you know, tip them into hyper anxiety or depression, but we want them to be able to understand how they moved from this place of trauma responses and active trauma into recovery from trauma, right? And into being able to navigate and understand what happened to them, but understand why now things can be different. And so I think that's an important distinction to be able to talk about trauma-informed, right? This way of providing services where we recognize the prevalence of early adversity in the lives of our clients. We view the presenting problems or what brings the client to therapy as a symptom, right? It's maladaptive coping. And we start to understand how early trauma shapes the client's fundamental beliefs about themselves, about relationships and about themselves in the world and in relationships. So we want to be able to approach it that way so that it starts to make sense. And I think when it starts to make sense and we've informed them along the way about, you know, kind of how this all has come to be and why this current behavior makes sense and we can connect it back to the past, then we're able to say, hey, we'd like to go here in the future. And here's what that looks like. And do you feel like you're ready? And here's what, you know, trauma work looks like. Like sometimes being able to say, you know, things are pretty calm in your life or can we make things calm in your life right now? Because when we start trauma work, we don't want, if possible, if we can control this, we don't want a lot of high stress things to be hitting your life when we're doing trauma work, right? Now, sometimes we can't control that, but I can say to my client, what does your next day or two look like? So that if we do a trauma modality today, hopefully there's not high stress 
or a negative thing that comes in while we've got some memory networks still open. We don't want that to happen, right? So sometimes we can get a pretty good prediction or even control. Like maybe this is a person we're not gonna talk to for the next two days just to make sure that we don't have negative coming in when we've opened up a memory network and kind of worked on some trauma pieces. So again, I, I think it's important as clinicians that we understand we don't wanna stir up too much from the bottom that neither of us can see because that's going to lead to panic. And one of the worst things that can happen, just like with cave divers and just like with trauma work is for both the clinician and the client to start to panic about what's happening. So that also means we have to know each other fairly well, right? I will say to clinicians sometimes, can you regulate this client? Can you influence in session and bring them down from a hyper aroused state into their window of tolerance? Or if they go into some dissociation and they shut off, can you bring them up? Can you awaken their nervous system so that they're not in this dissociated state? And if you can't do that in a session, we're probably not ready for trauma work. And then the other thing I always say is, we can't just start a trauma modality. I see this a lot with clinicians where you know some clinicians have anxiety around doing trauma work. They don't want to do harm to clients. And I understand their good intentions on behalf of clients, but I also say like you don't want to be the bull in the china shop going in, but you also don't want to be so gentle that it's not really helpful. So we need to be able to though talk to our clients about this trauma modality. We can't pull this trauma modality out and use it because we're anxious as a clinician, right? The client has a right to be informed when we're beginning trauma work and when we're beginning it in terms of like actually using a trauma modality. I think they have to know why we're doing that, what is expected with doing that, and what does that look like when they leave our office. So some things to consider if you're the client, some things to consider if you're a clinician, because I know I have both who listen to this podcast episode. I just wanted to cover that base and talk about as I was thinking about that book and I was thinking about cave divers, I have no plan to ever do cave diving. I just don't know that I could handle that. But as I was listening to that, it reminded me of kind of some of the conversations I have with clinicians and even with clients around trauma work. I thought that connection was... It was fascinating to me. And so I hope that you found kind of some unique parallels in talking about that story of the rescue of the Thai soccer team, as well as trauma-informed and then actually doing the trauma work. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie the legal stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The prayer of the perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough.
Amen.